0: In 2019, at the Civil War Institute Summer Conference at Gettysburg College, I interviewed Amy Murrell-Taylor about her book, Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Refugee Slave Camps. With Juneteenth upon us, and soon to be recognized as a federal holiday, I thought it was important to re-release our discussion, and to emphasize once again what Amy demonstrated in her book. Emancipation was an uncertain process, and one that enslaved people had to pursue throughout the Civil War. Or as Amy states, freedom had to be searched for and found. We're back at the Civil War Institute Summer Conference, and my next guest is Amy Mural Taylor, uh, who is a professor at the University of Kentucky uh, and the author of a brand new book called Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War Refugee Camps. Amy, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you for having me.
0: Um, so this is a, a great book, and I think... Um, well, there's a lot that that we can talk about here, um, but your title is very telling, and um, maybe it's naive on my part, but refugee was never a term that sort of mm-hmm. entered into my thinking when thinking about um, emancipation and, and slaves becoming free, um, but it really, this is a massive dislocation. You say that several times in your book, and you said it in your presentation, so can you first talk about where I know that social history is sort of at the center of Mm -hmm. what you do. Was it these stories that you found first or was it sort of this idea that you had first? How did this sort of book and this idea come together?
1: Okay. Well, I think it was kind of in my head for years before I started working on it. And what happened was I wrote another book called The Divided Family in Civil War America, which is a completely different subject But as you say, I'm a social historian. I really try to get into the stories of ordinary common people and how they just experienced this war. And what happened was I would just come across references to formerly enslaved people who were fleeing to Union Army camps and living there for as long as four years of the war. And I just kept making note of this, thinking that's just not, that doesn't square with how I understood emancipation and how it played out. You know, what is what is going on? What were they doing? What were they, how are they living this way? And so I just kind of kept it in my head, and was not finding enough written out there to explain it to me, you know, and I think one of the gnawing questions for me was, how do you go from slavery, to living inside an army encampment in the middle of a war zone, in the hope of freedom? I mean, how do you do something so risky <laughs> right, right, in the course of seeking freedom? So it stuck with me for a while, but it was about 10 years ago. This was about a 10-year okay. book um, wow. when I actually really got started. So I was probably just starting to work on it when I first met you at the University of Albany. Yes, yes. yes.
0: Um, and you were writing it in the midst of very sadly, leaving us at the University of no. Albany to go to Kentucky, as you mentioned in your yeah. in your book. So it must have been a labor of love that, that took a <laughs> lot uh, of, of time and energy. It has been. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you talk a lot about space, physical space, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a trunk that uh, uh, an enslaved couple owns where they keep just about everything they have. Um a hastily uh, constructed shelter on the outskirts of a union camp. Um, Why is space so important for a historian? Why space maybe has something to do with like fighting over space is is, why space important?
1: Well, I mean, that is the war was one big conflict and contestation about space, but that wasn't quite my entry point. Um, What I was trying to do with the book, what really struck me early on, kind of, I guess, getting back to what I was saying, like, how does somebody live like this for four years, live as a refugee? Um, I mean, it's a question of our times, too. How do people survive this? And I was really curious about the question of survival. How do they, men, women, and children, survive this existence? And that required thinking about just the most basic elements of life, food, clothing, and then I got on to shelter. And I started studying what they were living in, often started as cast off tents, and then these hastily built shacks and and so forth. Um, And I found that by looking at these houses, there was actually a great deal of meaning surrounding them. And that's kind of what got me thinking about space. So in some places where uh, they were distant from active combat, they had a little more stability. You start to see more deliberate planning going on to organize these camps and like where should the houses be in relation to white soldiers or uh, what size should each house be and so forth. And when you start digging into that, you see a lot of meaning, particularly about race at a really transformative moment in American history Uh, because these refugees themselves are building these houses and and locating them across space but there are white officers white missionaries people who are realizing that they're basically when they're building these houses they're building the beginning of freedom and they want to get it right and they they realize there's a lot of meaning in how race plays out over space it's really a theme in american history if you start thinking about racial segregation and so forth that comes later, um, but just you know one example uh, we have in some places where these um, military officials want to make sure that the houses that are built are very small and would only fit a nuclear family—mother, father, child—because in their minds that is the proper family structure of free citizens. So they're looking at this enslaved population, and in their mind they don't see a population that's ready. To necessarily to have full citizenship rights but they're going to groom them and they're going to manipulate these houses in space in a way that like grooms them for citizenship
0: R- which is and there's some very interesting uh letters uh in the book where the officers are talking about that and yeah explicitly yeah yeah yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: which was really surprising to me so when you ask about how did you get into space well it's hard not to it's hard to read those letters and not get sucked into you know wow they're paying a lot of attention to ha- the arrangement of these camps right right yeah
0: um so um, Benjamin Butler is a very interesting character, mm-hmm. and I yeah. think I even back we talked about him a little bit in, in one of the classes that I was fortunate enough to take with you. <laughs> um, and he sort of through him, I think we can largely see the thinking of uh, the Union Army and officers early on in the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in some cases, it, it it shifts. But he sees and he uses the term contraband. Uh, and he he. I think a few ex- escaped slaves wander into his camp, and well, not wander. I think they went there on purpose. Sure. Yes. Um, and he sees an opportunity, mm-hmm. and of course, it's a great opportunity for these slaves too to get away from their master. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, there's a lot. Li- there's aligned interests, but those interests don't always align throughout the war in general. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I know it's a big question, but yeah.
1: But uh, about Butler or yeah. about
0: well, but- Butler and then yeah.
1: I mean, Butler is really interesting, Um, not an abolitionist. He's not very progressive on race and emancipation, but he is, I guess you would say he's very pragmatic and he's pretty political. And, you know, he was first in command in Maryland right when the war breaks out and some men, women and children are running into Union army lines there and he sends them back. And in his mind, this is Maryland is a Union state. You know, the laws of the Union apply, including the 1850s Fugitive Slaved Act. It is his responsibility to send them back. Well, then by mid-May, about May 21st, I think, he's sent to Fort Monroe, Virginia. Slaves start to run to the lines. This time, instead of sending them back, he decides to keep them in, as you say. Um, and in Butler's mind, well, everything had changed because now they were in a Confederate state. And there was something for the Union to gain by... Uh, allowing these people in their lines so he's very pragmatic so you can see he's not like driven by a particular ideology of anti-slavery necessarily right right you know it's very practical with him um and in his initial order allowing them in the lines he sees like there's a a common benefit there's um you know a merging of of interests between this enslaved population and the union because the union's going to get labor And this population is going to get protection from slavery. So it all kind of melds together. Um, This is a way of kind of viewing the relationship between the army and enslaved people that would be then shared by other union officials. And you can see it in Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation uh, about two years later. Where, I mean, Lincoln comes right out and says, this is a military necessity to free enslaved people. It really benefits the army uh, to free enslaved people. There's this, again, alignment of interests. But, you know, both of them are operating at this very sort of theoretical level almost, you know, when they're issuing policies. They're thinking big picture, they're thinking in an abstract way. And in that sense, yeah, there is an alignment of interests. But what I write about in the book is the way in which on the ground in everyday life, Um, there are many, many conflicts between the army and enslaved people. You know, sometimes the enslaved people, or I should call them refugees, (laughs) because they've left slavery, Mm -hmm. but they, you know, they need shelter. You know, they need to occupy certain buildings to at least have shelter. But then suddenly the army brings in all... A huge number of new soldiers. Well, they need that space, and suddenly there's this great contestation back up to space, (laughs) over space again. And so there you see kind of a collision of their interests. And you know that sounds kind of minor, but when you're somebody who has left slavery, you're trying to imagine the future. You have your children. You're trying to at least, you know, find a place to sleep and roof over your head, protection from the elements. It's a big deal to lose. That shelter. It is. It is. So, and that would set back their journey to
0: freedom. And and I think that the 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 big couple that you follow is the Whitehurst, mm-hmm. and and this mm-hmm. is their story, really. I mean, yeah. hope, and you know they're able to open their own business, and yeah. and then yeah, gone, gone, and and, and so oh. did you. So t- can you just talk a little well, bit about you know them?
1: I mean yes. So I write about this couple, Edward and Emma Whitehurst, who they flee um, right by in the area of Fort Monroe, that Virginia Peninsula, you know, just a few days after Benjamin Butler's order. So they're one of the first people to flee into Union Army lines. And one of the first things that they do is they open up a store, which I just found really remarkable. Um, Not something I expected somebody coming out of slavery to do. But uh, for reasons I explain in the book, they had been able to accumulate some money during slavery and they saved it and um were able to then use it to open the store. And you know what? It makes a, I mean I was surprised at first but it makes a lot of sense because and this was true with with everybody who fled to Union Army lines. The first one of the first things they're thinking about is how they're going to support themselves. You know, they did not immediately assume the army was just going to take care of them. And they certainly didn't want to become dependents of the army. Um, that was a pretty foreign scary force to them. So they're trying to take you know, to support themselves and they've got to make money. I mean, it's pretty basic. Right. right. So, um, so I tell their story and their story like others, and is really true with almost everybody. It's not a straight linear path from slavery to freedom. And, um, when we talk about this sort of collision between the army and free and, and refugee, uh, people, they experience that in a pretty major way, right. um, and I'll just—I won't give it all away, but sure. I'll say that uh, the store is very vulnerable mm-hmm. during the war.
0: I think that we all, um, at least at some point in our lives, like like to think of emancipation as this sort of made-for-TV moment, yeah. Um, you know where, <laughs> literally, you know, a troop troops come onto the the plantation mm-hmm. and say you're you know you're free. Yeah. There, I did a previous podcast with somebody. Who uh, wrote a book about uh, Gordon Granger, who was a Union general, and it sounded like it was somewhat like that in Texas. So, but the 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 idea there is that it was different all over mm-hmm. the place, yes. and and yes. and and the um, refugees you're talking about are in a constant struggle for for this freedom.
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes the entire four yes. years of the war. Yeah, yeah, but you know, you make a really important point um, that this history of emancipation absolutely varies by place. And even just the, the refugee part of the story, um, what I'm talking about affected about 500,000 people, one eighth of the enslaved population. Even that history is very different from place to place, depending on what's happening in the war, what's happening militarily. Absolutely changes the situation.
0: That brings us to Kentucky, and yeah, you, you oh. know, and there's so much there's so much time that you could spend on Kentucky, yeah. and and as Lincoln said, and you point out in your book, the whole game. And so, you know, you could see. Um, Really, where Lincoln's thinking is that, again, the emancipation doesn't free slaves in the border states, Mm -hmm. um, Kentucky being one of the most important border states. And you talk about all of that sort of through uh, Gabriel Burdett, a very interesting character Mm -hmm. um, who he had some sort of – he was a a preacher. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, an enslaved preacher, but he, he had some ability to sort of, you know, uh, mold his sermons and, 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 and uh, have relationships with his parishioners. But the war brings this, you know, opportunity and then lost opportunity. And I think he ends up in the U.S. colored troops at, uh, at the end of the war.
1: He does. And he assumes a leadership position at Camp Nelson, which becomes one of the sites of these refugee settlements. Um, but, yeah, his story, on the one hand it's a story of how long and protracted this process was in the state of Kentucky, you know, this union slaveholding state where uh, I would say the union and Lincoln in particular kind of bent over backwards to placate slaveholders in Kentucky. And so emancipation really played out, as I say in the book, in the slowest of motion there. Um, Many, many people ran into union army lines, you know, for several years and kept getting expelled and sent back even though at the very same moment they're being accepted into Union army lines and other places, Gabriel Burdett, he first enters Union army lines, um, not because he ran off voluntarily, but he was impressed by the Union army. You know, here's the union. On the one hand, they're expelling people won't let them come in voluntarily, but they're willing to take enslaved men from central Kentucky and pay their owners, for their labor. And that's how Gabriel Burdett first got into Union Army lines. Eventually um, he did enlist, as you say, and became a free person. But his story also gets us into religion and the way in which religious faith becomes so important, Um, not to everybody, but to uh, quite a few who are experiencing all the setbacks we started to talk about, Um, you know, illness and disease and and uh, fighting and combat, everything that is sort of getting in the way, and yet they still keep coming into Union army lines. Like there's there's a degree of of hope there, and I you know religious faith really plays a role. Um, Especially what's interesting to hear some of these ministers like Burdett talk about um, is the biblical story of Exodus and the way in which they start comparing what they're experiencing to the Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, who experienced this long protracted period of suffering uh, before they reached the promised land. And that's how some of them view their time in the refugee camps, you know, that maybe they're suffering, but the promised land is coming.
0: Right, right. And
1: to sort of understand how they could do that, you have to really sort of get into um, their religious mindset.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, you, you talk a little bit about your sources and the bureaucracy of the Union Army, which mm-hmm. is, <laughs> it's huge. Sure, uh, yeah. And, and uh, I imagine mm-hmm. that it was a treasure trove of, of stuff for you to go through and that there's probably still a lot more stuff oh. out there. Um, so what else are we potentially going to get from... I mean, those sources have been out there. I know people have gone through them before, but not with this sort of yeah aim, to talk about this wartime chaos, yeah. not not of the soldiers, but of the enslaved people yeah. seeking freedom.
1: So, you know, I did look at wide range of sources, missionary records, right. newspapers, and so forth, but the military records were really so crucial. And as you say, they're huge. Yes, it's, it was a huge bureaucracy. And I mean, I can't even tell you (laughs) how many records there are at the National Archives. I mean, just the records of the Army Continental Commands alone, thousands and thousands of boxes. Um, It's actually amazing to me what record keepers, local Army clerks were in a time of war. I mean, they you know duplicates of orders and lists of who were receiving rations and lists of who uh, were laboring for the army. Um, it is a treasure trove, but it's also just a mountain. Um, this is the collection that, if anybody's familiar with the official records of the War of the Rebellion, so that over a hundred volume published series that was done um, at the turn of the century, they that source was extracted from what's at the National Archives, but it's a very small percent of what that's actually at the archives. So that just gives an idea um, of how much is there. What else will we find? I mean, I think um, there's a lot of more in-depth work that could be done simply on African-American military labor hmm. for the army and all the different kinds of work and um, when they were paid, when they weren't paid, that was a problem. And you get into um, it a little bit. I do. They weren't
0: paid a lot, you know. Yeah. And sometimes, or they not were promised all. a decent yeah. amount and not yeah. yeah,
1: actually paid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot to do about the labor that African American people provided to the Union Army. I think it's far more significant than we've given it credit for right. to the Army's success. Uh, so that's one area. And I think um, I get into some of the material culture of the army and camp life you know houses as we talked about uniforms um, food you could think of as material culture I think there's still a lot more to do about that a lot of these records they seem really dry I mean a list of people who receive rations at first you open it you're like oh you know it's just it's a list of names and a bunch of like hash marks and columns and it doesn't really jump out at you as telling a story but when you really start to look at more of it and start thinking about it there really is a story there and uh, so I'd like to see more work done there too
0: I'm particularly fascinated, I think I have been for a while, with the border states and mm-hmm. um, Missouri and Kentucky and I know we're going backwards, but John C. Fremont in 1861 oh. and what he does in Missouri. And that, you know, looking into that, I think gives you a real clear understanding of what the war was about initially and sort of mm-hmm. how um, uh, people shift and, and things shift. And, and mm-hmm. I think you bring a lot to the surface in terms in terms of, um why it made sense for butler to take on Mm -hmm. some escaped enslaved people and then how it sort of grew a little bit and 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 there was sort of a you know up and down kind of thing yeah and then
1: fremont tries to do it and even free them and lincoln says no way no way you know in a union state so i mean again i mean i think that that takes us to um the first couple years of the war are far more interesting when it comes to emancipation that we have given it credit for, because I think we oftentimes jump to the proclamation or jump to the post proclamation period. So 1863, but in fact, there's so much going on in those first two years as the union's trying to figure out how it's going to approach this issue. Um, and so I guess getting back to more work, I'd love to see more done on that as right. well. But well,
0: even county by county, because uh, you know, yeah. you go into Virginia yeah. now and in, you know, a county over, you might, the emancipation might,
1: it applies apply
0: and then it might not you and then know. other places no. right and yeah the, and then as you said you know union the union army is trying to figure out who it actually applies to and they, and nobody has confused. id cards yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um now uh how is kentucky uh, i know this isn't mm-hmm. this is going to maybe be the toughest question of the whole interview but you were a huge part of the U especially for my experience at the U Albany history department and your loss was felt, um, deeply. Oh, and you're sweet. So, so I hope Kentucky is, is a great university. <laughs> and I, and, and I know you, um, you've won a, a teaching award there, which I could speak personally to is well-deserved. Thank you. One of the best teachers, uh, that I've, that I've ever had. And if I've ever, even made the smallest contribution to this kind of work. It's because I had you as a professor. Oh, thank so you. Can you just talk a little bit about what's going on at the University of Kentucky and and uh-huh. sort of the program there?
1: Yeah. Well, let me like dry my tears first. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, that was very sweet. Um, so Kentucky, you know, first of all, I miss Albany and all my friends there. Um, it was a, a great place to teach. When I moved to Kentucky though, I did move closer to this history. And I actually moved down the road about 30 minutes from Camp Nelson, Kentucky, which was is one of the camps that I write about. Um, so the move did enable me to do a little bit more research on the ground, and um, I now actually, you know, hang out at Camp Nelson, and um, you know, <laughs> you're a regular. <laughs> I'm kind of a regular out there. I've had you know interns, supervised interns, working out there, and. Um, That sort of thing. So um, I'm able to do a little bit more field work, you might say, with students in particular, which is really meaningful to me. Um, I also have taken students out to an antebellum plantation. And we did a project where we were um, helping them research the lives of enslaved people there because they didn't really know very much. And we created a whole new exhibit for this house. Um, that uh, has now changed their slavery interpretation. So there's the kind of ability to not just do research, but to maybe even have some impact on the public history right. um, there, which, um, you know, has been valuable and meaningful. Right. Yeah. Oh. Uh,
0: I want to thank you so much for doing this. I know, I know it's a, a crazy and it's a busy weekend, but... Uh, oh,
1: this is like the highlight. Thank you. Well, th-
0: thank you for doing <laughs> it. I enjoyed your book and um, Embattled Freedoms... Uh, and Battle Freedom, which, again, you just have to look at the title to sort of get an idea. And mm-hmm. Freedom journeys through the Civil War's refugee camps. And, of course, there are a lot of parallels to not just today but any day. I mean, you think about refugees. And at least for me, there's a very vivid picture in your mind. And yeah. it's not a good one. I mean, it's yeah. – um, and, and it's sort of a um, – a struggle that lasts and endures so yeah uh, and i think that's important to take away from this there's a lot of resonance to today yes uh so amy thank you once again
1: you're welcome thanks for having me